0: Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a
1: podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman.
2: Welcome to Think Humanities Podcast. Today, I am joined by the Smith family, Ed and Betsy Smith, star Chautauqua players from way back, and we're so glad to have them both with us. Uh, I'll ask uh, Ed Smith to talk about his character, Justice John Marshall Harlan, and Betsy to talk about her two characters and let her explain about... um, a Lincoln connection she has, and a Boone connection she has in her uh, Chautauqua um, pocket. So we'll we'll talk uh, about uh, those characters. But first, a little bit about uh, both of you individually, if you will. Somebody listening to us today might say, "How in the world do you become a Chautauqua character? What what brings one to uh, this uh, talent?" And uh, uh, so, uh, Betsy, won't you tell us what? What um, interest do you have in performing before a group of people and presenting your characters? And tell us about your characters.
1: That's a lot to unload it all at the same time. (laughs) Um, I majored in history and American studies. And from the time I was little, I loved a good history story. So Chautauqua was natural for me, but Ed was actually the first one who came into the fold and he was brought in largely because of George McGee who played Henry Clay for decades for Kentucky Humanities and Ed began in 2000 as Adolf Rupp and I watched how much fun he was having and going all over the state and I'm like this is so much for me yeah. so I was lucky enough to be looking for a character close to the Lincoln bicentennial and of course I'm going to do Mary Todd Lincoln and I came across Emily and I was like oh she has the best position for being able to talk about the Lincolns to talk about Kentucky during the Civil War and to talk about Kentucky during Reconstruction and portraying Emily for eight years was just a delight and as bookings began to slow down for her I found a new interest in the pioneer era and jumped on as Jemima Boone in 2014. And Jemima Boone is? The daughter of Daniel Boone, not Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) (laughs) Last name there uh, gives us a hint.
2: She was the, was she the fourth uh, child of?
1: I think you're right. It's been a long time since I've looked at those notes, but she was... By all accounts, the child that remained closest to him all through his life, and then toward the end of his life, he spent most of his time living with her. After 1813, it was largely because Rebecca's grave, his wife's grave, was on that property, but they, they were bonded for life after an experience she had at the age of 13.
2: We'll talk a little bit more about uh, her, of course, uh, in just a few minutes. Mm-hmm. And you, her and her. and her, Us. <laughs> uh, Ed, uh, you're also at Georgetown.
0: Uh, is that where you met? We, we did, yes. We met first in an acting class. So th- there you have it. Uh, Betsy had actually finished and had come back to do some more work, post, uh, post-baccalaureate work. And uh, we met at Georgetown and we were both, uh, had been involved in uh, college speech competitions. And, uh, and so we met there and that was in 86 and it's been an adventure ever since. And so I teach at Georgetown now and uh, in the theater and film department. Uh, and, so, um, and so, yeah, we, we, we are one of those college couples that, that have stayed together, so that's been fun.
2: And tell us about uh, well, you you have a couple of characters, uh, and uh, I, I, have your students in your class in your acting classes seen you perform?
0: You know, some of them have, but not often. Um, I think that'd be that'd be a tough act <laughs> yeah, if right, I could but, just use well, that Well, yeah, well, <laughs> and you know, and it's funny, but too, because every now and then I'll I'll throw something out, and, and you know, just do a little bit of it. You know, talking about something, and and they, uh, of course, they inevitably ask, "Did you? How do you mem- remember all of that?" But um, I, I, don't usually perform for them. Um, the, uh, but I do, as Betsy had mentioned earlier, uh, was lucky enough to be uh, chosen as Adolf Rub, uh, and that's been a real sort of treat to get to go across the state, and then more recently as John Marshall Harlan. Um, but those have been real, uh, real treats, and we. Both got into this because my colleague George McGee, uh, when I would started at Georgetown teaching, this was in '96, he said, uh, "You know the Chautauquas are a lot of fun, and if when they have auditions, you should, really should you know try to find a character and do it, do that because as directors we don't and teachers we don't get to act much anymore. I mean that's been you know you you're busy doing other things and so, and his wife Kathy." I said, "Well, George, I don't know. I mean, I you know, we'd done the sort of traveling, you know, to different schools uh, thing for about a decade, and and I said, I don't know who I would do." And she said, um, "You should do Adolf Rupp." And I, I said, "Absolutely not." <laughs> and and and, and she, she was George was like, "What do you mean?" And I'm like, "George, uh, nobody really knows or cares what Henry Clay sounds like, but everybody knows." <laughs> Remembers Adolph Rupp. I think
2: I would have responded, Adolph Rupp or God. Yeah, right. (laughs) Which which one exactly?
0: You know, and so. But then I really did some research, and I was born in Kentucky and native Kentuckian, but I just missed him. Uh, I was, uh, you know, uh, born in '65, so I'm just really too young to remember him. But the more I read about him, uh, the more I understood why I thought the way I did about Kentucky basketball. You know, and it's that sort of uncompromising uh, drive that, and as I, and he, Rupp was funny, and he was interesting, and he had, there was stuff I didn't know about him, and those are all things that as an actor, you think, oh wow, that's, that would be interesting to know more about. And so I was fortunate enough to be selected, and uh, that was in,
1: 2000, 2000, we think.
0: We think. <laughs> I've been doing it. I joke that I've been doing it long enough that I need a lot less old age makeup. You know, when I started, I was 35.
1: But playing rep at, at 72.
0: <laughs> and so, you know, the elaborate sort of, you know, um, elaborate makeup and gray hair and, you know, and the, the sort of the gray in the hair was one of the first things that I realized because you're outside in the summer performing <laughs> And you hear this, this the pitter patter of dripping, and it's sweat. It's the your gray hair makeup dripping onto your <laughs> shoulder, and I was like, oh boy. Yeah. So, um, so it's just been a real sort of adventure.
2: You know, I didn't know the order of your uh, characters, and frankly, um, I thought maybe you had started with. Justice Harlan and then done Rupp. I, I don't know why, maybe just history, uh, <laughs> right. but my mistake uh, no, on that, okay. I'm glad I didn't blurt that out in public somewhere. <laughs> um, but then, uh, so how long have you done uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan?
0: We're looking at- We think
1: something. it was 2008.
0: Yeah, so okay. so it's been a, it's been a while. I, I did Rupp for several years and then um, than did Harlan. So it's been about since 2008. Yeah.
2: Do you remember, I mean, it's sort of uh, it was easy for uh, our our good old friend George McGee to throw mm-hmm. out uh, Adolph Rupp's name. Um, uh, how did you or someone else suggest that uh, Justice Harlan be one of those uh, Chautauqua characters that we should put uh, in our Kentucky Humanities stable?
1: Wasn't it Virginia?
0: I think the former director of Virginia Virginia, Virginia, yeah. Virginia Smith and, and Virginia she, Carter yes, uh-huh. yes and she uh, we were talking and she I said you know I'd like to maybe do another character um, yeah I'm having a lot of fun and um, I think she said well you should look at John Marshall Harlan and I said who <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, actor mm-hmm. not the historian in mm-hmm. the family and um, so you went home and asked yeah, Betsy <laughs> Betsy, said, Betsy tell me who and. Um, and then you know, and I vaguely remember the uh, the Great Dissenter, which is his you know his nickname that he's most known by. Um, but then I found out, but then the Plessy v. Ferguson, the, the, he was his most famous dissent. And when I found out that the only person who, the only Supreme Court justice to vote against state segre, state sponsored segregation, was a former slave owner who fought for the Union. That's when I thought, okay, I need to, I, whether anybody else does, I need to know how that worked. And so that was, you know, you start to do the research and then you, you know, you find more and it just becomes more and more interesting. And, um, and so that was, yeah, Virginia men, yeah, Virginia mm-hmm. mentioned it, but it was, um, and I just really had never heard it. And that, one of the things that I found fairly early on is that he was one of the most Capable men of his generation, sort of widely acknowledged in the politics of the era, and figured pretty prominently into politics before and immediately after the Civil War, and I never heard of him. You know, and lots of other Kentuckians
2: haven't. Yeah. Betsy, your characters, um, did you. Discover those yourself? Did somebody suggest that you do those? Uh, which one came first? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm.
1: Emily Todd Helm, I found her reading about Mary Todd Lincoln. Emily was Mary's half sister. But what is, well, it's just sort of the same kind of dichotomy that Ed has with Harlan. She was Lincoln's sister-in-law, a beloved member of that family they called her little sister Lincoln called her little sister but she married a man who sort of wavered for a while on which side to go with and finally became a confederate general and after he was killed at Chickamauga she spent time in the Lincoln White House which is sort of akin to having a Nazi relative come into Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Mm -hmm. White House and you know snarling and infighting kind of ensued and she couldn't stay very long but she was beloved by the lincolns and she she did have that strong tie to the confederacy but also was very very supportive of robert todd lincoln as he grew up without his father and she really loved the lincoln legacy her house in lexington (laughs) you know, at one point had just lying around, there was Lincoln's pocket watch and just all these trinkets from the family that had sort of come down and landed in her lap. And I loved telling that story to Kentucky's kids because when you read in fourth grade, Kentucky was neutral at the beginning of the Civil War, and you think, oh, that meant nobody cared. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness, Um It's hard to imagine not knowing what side your neighbor, well, maybe not in this political climate, what -hmm. what side your neighbor is on or who's going to turn against you because of what side your son went to fight for. And Lincoln had sisters-in-law who were adamant Confederates. One of them met her her future husband at Jefferson Davis's inaugural ball while he had other sister-in-laws who were there on the podium with him when he was inaugurated himself. So it's, it's great to watch those kids start to understand that and really realize what happened right here.
2: I'm going to imagine, um, that there's a lot of material available on, on her, um, Am I I correct about that?
1: She's mentioned more in passing than you would think. There are a few articles written about her, and of course Mary wrote, Mary Todd Lincoln's daughter wrote a biography, and there's a lot about her in that. But as far as just examining Emily, there's not very much. There are a few poignant pieces that I came across in her handwriting Mm. of a couple of incidents that she witnessed while she was in the South during the war and just hand wrote them. One of them I used in my presentation is Emily. The other one just breaks my heart to think of it. She was on a train leaving Chattanooga and a couple of soldiers got on with another soldier who was obviously not long for this world and the conductor directed them to get off the train because the man was just not going to make it and looking out the window Emily saw this young man die and she took her last handkerchief and put it out the train window for them to cover his face mm. and that's the you know that's
0: mm-hmm.
1: in having that in her voice is almost it's just it's was such a treasure to me because it just made it so immediate
2: how much do we know about her in the White House and uh, you said it was a a short time. It was quite controversial Mm -hmm. at the time. Um, How long was she there and and what do we know about, did she stay inside most of the time?
1: She stayed inside. It was after the, the Lincolns had lost Willie to typhoid fever and Mary was in deep mourning, Lincoln was worried a little bit for her sanity, and it was wonderful for Mary to have Emily there, and they comforted each other because Emily had just lost her husband, and and Lincoln, of course, was fond of her and wanted her to be there for Mary's sake, but there were just too many voices that objected to having her there, and, and at one point she openly got into it with a Senator Harris who was baiting her about the fortunes of the South during the war, and at one point said, you know, if, if, I had, if I had a son, he would be fighting for his country because Robert Lincoln at the time was not allowed to join the military, and Emily stood up and said, and if I had 20 sons." They would all be fighting yours. Mm. So, <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I well, Lincoln's note when he sent oh. It, oh, that's a General note.
1: Sickles overheard it and went straight to Lincoln tattling, <laughs> and Lincoln just said, "My guest, basically, my guests are my own business." <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Well, but the note when she wouldn't take the oath of, um, she wouldn't take, the, she wouldn't swear the oath. Oh.
1: Right? That, it's hard to you really. Have, it's hard to think of it as two different countries, but it was, and you could not just go back and forth from the Union to mm-hmm. the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. And when Ben, her husband, died, and she was trying to get back to the North, they stopped her at Fortress Monroe because she refused to insult Ben's memory by taking the oath of loyalty to the mm-hmm. United States. And after days of begging her, the soldiers gave up and wired Lincoln, <laughs> and he said. Um, it's been a while. <laughs> send her to me. Send her, send to, her me. to me. <laughs> send her That's to what me. it that was. Just <laughs> telegram, send yeah, her to Lincoln's me. Just
0: telegram, <laughs> telegram, went back and said, send her to me. And she went up.
2: What um, What do we know, and this is a, a, a little bit uh, off the the character, but what do we know about the relationship that uh, the president had with her husband?
1: They didn't meet until they were adults. They were born in the same county, which was Harden, I think, at the time. But they became friends. And when Lincoln entered the White House, he was very hopeful that he could keep as many of the Todd men, or men that were married to Todd women, in the fold. And he wrote Ben offering him a position as major, which Mm -hmm. would have made him the highest, you know, very high rank for somebody with no military experience. And Ben actually went to visit Robert E. Lee and thought it over for days. And he was, he told Emily he'd never seen Lee looking so sad because Lee was struggling with the same decision. And Ben thought about it and he just couldn't not go with the Confederacy. uh, He was a
2: segregationist.
1: He was, they had, his father owned $40,000 worth of slaves, even though he didn't really want to see the union in dissolved in Kentucky. He, hmm. he grew up in Elizabethtown. Yeah. So it, it, he struggled with it, and he was one of the few people in the South who Lincoln mourned after he was killed. Lincoln mentioned, he said, I, I feel as David of old on hearing of the death of Absalom. Who, of course, betrayed his father, David.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you have any idea? And this is this is visited by many people, um, and I was fortunate enough to hear about it from someone since I've been at Kentucky Humanities. But the summer home uh, Lincoln had uh, north of the White House, I mean, it's still in the in the district. Uh, have you ever been there yourself? And. Uh, it's it said that the very desk uh, that Lincoln used to write the Emancipation Proclamation is is mm-hmm. the one in that home. Mm-hmm. It used to be the old soldiers' home,
1: right? Uh, th- they spent a lot of time there. That that they, I was going to say.
2: Mm-hmm. Did, did, uh, do you know that they were there uh, to to escape the heat mm-hmm. and the humidity from the Potomac? <laughs> uh huh. And, and they they did spend quite a bit of time there.
1: They did. They did. And yeah.
2: And um, of course, sad, uh, uh, no other way to describe it, uh, Lincoln would, uh, would sometimes have to go uh, uh, in the dark of night because he was attacked a couple of times. In fact, I think there was one attempted at assassination even mm-hmm. at that time early on mm-hmm. um, as he was riding to the, to the home. Oh, and he
1: was a marvelous target. Oh, tall yeah. and a top yeah, big, hat, yeah. and not but but he would pass
2: <laughs> all of the soldiers, uh, both I think Union and Confederate I believe mm-hmm. that were just lying on the side of the road, mm-hmm. just uh, uh, ill, sick, and mm-hmm. I'm sure some dying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, what a story of that relationship. Uh, she she returned
1: here. Um, she came back to Kentucky. Uh huh. To to Lexington. She was in Lexington for a while, but reconstruction was hard on her, and she actually moved to Madison, Indiana for a while, taught music, was a church organist, Hmm. Uh, and then she came back and lived in Elizabethtown, which is where her husband was from, and became postmistress Hmm. and was appointed by three different presidents from two different political parties, so that was kind of cool. And did that, and then finally ended up Her son, Ben, bought her a place right outside of Lexington, which is sort of close behind Ramsey's Diner on Harrodsburg Road. Really? Back in that... How interesting. In that Mm -hmm. rural area.
2: That was way out in the country. (laughs) Yes, it was then. (laughs) (laughs) We'll hear more from uh, the Smith family, uh, Ed and uh, Betsy and their characters, uh, Jemima Boone and Justice uh, Harlan, right after we take this short pause from our wonderful friends and our underwriter at Spalding University.
0: The Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing offers students intellectual rigor, emotional support, affordability, flexibility, and community at the world's first certified compassionate university. From certificate to terminal degree, the programs at Spalding School of Writing foster lifelong writing habits, and help you forge a lasting writing community. Learn more at spaldingedu slash school of writing or email school of writing at Ed, uh,
2: tell us, um, uh, give us a brief sketch of uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan and, and why um, he's, significant, uh, was significant then, certainly was significant then, and, and even maybe more so today. Uh, I, I've read just recently that in his day, uh, he wasn't really given the credit that uh, he now uh, seems to deserve. In fact, uh, some historians labeled him one of our great uh, associate justices of the Supreme Court.
0: Yes, to all of those things. Um, To speak to the to the latter part of that, he really, until Brown versus the Board of Education, was sort of forgotten. I mean, historically and for um, his importance on the bench, Um, and you know, Thurgood Marshall used his dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson. Uh, as the basis for Brown, so, uh, but it, it is interesting how history is not a given um, thing. You know, it, it ebbs, things ebb and flow, and people become come in and out of focus, if you will. Uh, John Marshall Harlan was a, a native Kentuckian who grew up uh, before the Civil War. Uh, his father was, uh, in some ways, Henry Clay's lieutenant, and so he grew up uh, a Whig and watching his father support Henry Clay and the idea that what mattered the most was preserving the Union and the Constitution. Uh, he was, uh, the, the Marshall, uh, the Harlan family was in a, one of the the state's sort of leading families. Um, I would guess that John Marshall Harlan knew Benjamin Todd Helm, Emily's Helms. You know, they were probably ran in the same circles. Um, with, that's a guess on my part, but they, you know, and so he uh, grew up, uh, his father uh, was a slave owner. They had about 10 or 12 slaves. Uh, they, he grew up in central Kentucky and you know, Harrodsburg and Danville area. His father uh, was uh, attorney general, I think, at one point. Uh, he was a, but he was a politician. And so Harlan grew up sort of uh, on the milk of politics and Kentucky politics uh, from a very young age he watched his father support Henry Clay in this idea of a strong national government. And so uh, as the Whigs fell apart and uh, the country sort of stumbled its way toward the Civil War, Harlan, uh, as a, a young man, uh, moved from uh, political party to political party in position trying to, f- trying to figure out how to move forward. He was a, a Whig. Uh, and then he and his father were part of the American Party, which was not a, a great look, <laughs> you know, the, based on the know-nothings and, you know, sort of anti-immigrant. Um, but the Whigs were just trying to figure out where to survive and where to go to next. He then, uh, at some point, was a constitutional unionist, um, you know, and so, so who was for the, for keeping the country together but against abolishing slavery. And so, you know, these um, two sort of competing interests were very much in his head. Uh, When the Civil War happened, he declared for the Union. And he and his father worked very tirelessly, his father was still alive then, to keep Kentucky in the Union. Um, They were part of what was called the Lincoln Rifles. They smuggled guns into the state. Um, Harlan at the time was uh, living in Louisville. And uh, he just did everything that he could to keep Kentucky in, and th- they did. Served in the Union. His father passed away during the war, and Harlan had to uh, leave the army to settle the affairs. Uh, he had an older brother who was right. an alcoholic and was not really capable of dealing with it, you know, by himself. And but Harlan was so. He was um, adamant, and he wrote a letter to his commanders that he also had published in the Louisville paper, um, stating that it was not because he did not believe in the cause of the war, and so you know because some Union men who were slave owners um, were were leaving and quitting because of Lincoln, and he really did he wanted to make sure that that was known that that wasn't the case, and so after the war. He really became a man trying to find a political home. He at one point briefly um, supported George, well, he supported George McKellen um, uh, running against Lincoln because he was against emancipation. So Harlan was pro-union against emancipation. Um, And, uh, but he, after the war, in some ways, and I was just reading this, Kentucky, uh, African-Americans may have been under more pressure in places like Kentucky, because um, in the southern states they at least the, the federal forces were still in charge, but in Kentucky that was much less the case, and so there was terrible violence, um, terrible violence against uh, African Americans after the war, and Harlan was witness that, and he but he refused to be a Democrat. Just I mean he had. Grown up all his life that the Democratic Party were, you know, the the devil, Uh, and so he just couldn't stay. He just couldn't stand it, and he finally uh, joined the Republican Party, and at which at the time was almost non-existent in Kentucky. And they nominated him to run for governor in '71. He had been uh, like a county judge. Like he, he didn't have a lot of success in politics. He was involved in it a lot, but. But he, as a as a Kentucky as a gubernatorial candidate for the Republicans, he he generated fifty thousand more votes than the previous candidate had. So he really kind of single handedly made the Republican Party much more prominent in Kentucky. He was still beat. Mm -hmm. He ran twice, um, beat both times. But he would um, he would just travel the whole state, and he was a very capable speaker. He started out when he was 16 or 17, and he would travel. He found out he was good at it, and so he would travel the state speaking on behalf of his father in the Whig cause, Mm. and he would debate against grown men. Uh, And so he was noticed from an early age as being this very capable orator. And um, he ran, he lost twice, but he was um, law partners with Benjamin Bristow. Who figured very prominently in the Grant administrations, and Bristow uh, ran wanted to run for president in uh, I guess this would have been seventy the seventy six election I think, and um, Harlan was the man who was supposed to get him there because at the time they didn't really want to run. You know, it was all well. I'll stay. Bristow literally stayed in Washington during the convention. You know, and if he was expecting to be nominated, then he would say, well, sure, I accept. So it really wasn't, it didn't do to, you know, really appear to want to do it. Mm-hmm. But, um, but Harlan, after, you know, when he started running as a Republican, he became one of the most sought-after speakers nationally mm-hmm. for the Republicans. He was brought to Maine uh, to speak. I mean, he worked, so he really started working for, Wholeheartedly for the Republicans, and people really called him on it, because that you know this was the same. He was against the Emancipation Proclamation, against the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, um, because his his um, his position was is that Kentucky should decide as its own state what to do with slavery. It's a little disingenuous, but he firmly believed that, and so. But then he, and, and so he spoke against the Republicans, and then he's running as a Republican, and he really sort of took it on the chin for a while, but he said, um, no, I, I mean, he, that's what he believed. And so eventually, um, at the convention, it became clear that Bristow was not going to, um, he was not going to get nominated, and, ha- and Harlan decided that it was late, it was the seventh ballot, And um, there was, um, I forget who it was, it was somebody from Maine, I think, who Harlan really didn't want to win because he had baggage. Um, And Harlan, he did the math and he realized Bristow couldn't do it, but if he threw Kentucky's votes to Hayes, then he would, um, they might stand a chance, and that's what happened. And so he stood up and said, well, you know, thank you for support for the states that have supported." my fellow Kentuckian, but Kentucky throws all, all its votes to Hayes. So um, Harlan now has a very large chit <laughs> in his pocket from Hayes and really wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. And so was then put on the Supreme Court. And uh, not long after he's on, he he's the only dissenter in two of the most important cases for... Civil Rights, the Civil Rights Act's cases in 83 and then Plessy versus Ferguson. And in both of those...
2: What did the first case... uh,
0: uh, The Civil Rights cases were a series of cases uh, about uh, discrimination and segregation, forced segregation in um, uh, an opera, uh, a a stagecoach, Mm. an inn, and And so, what they determined what what no one knew yet was that what would this what would the war amendments what do they really mean and it was up to the it was up to the Supreme Court to decide that and in the civil rights cases, it was a group of cases that they tried mm-hmm. together, and Harlan was the only dissent but the the Supreme Court decided that um it was legal for individuals to discriminate on the basis of race because it had nothing to do with the state Mm -hmm. and this was a huge blow and uh, the African-American population were, I mean, they were rightly, you know, terribly um, upset by Mm -hmm. this, but Harlem was the only dissent and he wrote a really forceful uh, dissent and I just read recently uh, it was probably the only, only the second time that a dissent had ever been historically important. Mm-hmm. That dissents weren't we now think of them a bit, mm-hmm. you know. But the idea that a dissent was, you know, important and you know legally important, really kind of gets going with Harlan, uh, and so um, so he he was the only dissenter in that. And I, um, Frederick Douglass wrote him a um, a note that said. Uh, what was it? Um, one man with God as a majority,
2: mm.
0: and um, and so the the African American population really um, f- supported. Um, Harlem became a big hero mm-hmm. of theirs because mm-hmm. what did they say? You know, one is better than none.
2: Uh, <laughs> he was uh, died in office in nineteen eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, went to center. Uh, went to Transylvania Law School. Mm-hmm. His, uh, interestingly enough, uh, there, there are some things at center, uh, but, but his papers are at the university of Louisville uh, who, who go figure, uh, but he did spend some time there. And, um, so I, I wanted to ask you, have you, have you, did you, uh, take time to read though? Have you, have you, been I have not had. don't you think that go. would be, I mean, those the the, some of the, his original writing, um, is there, in fact, there's, uh, and, and I don't know this i didn't I didn't do this there's some Harlan scholars like there are McConnell scholars uh, are there still Harlan scholars
0: I, I don't know i I, yeah. I just have heard about them um you know he has a tremendous amount of papers at the Library of Congress yeah and so and I don't know if there's duplication huh. between what's there and what's a little bit yeah. but I have not actually um I haven't actually gone to Louisville, I, I, I may have to do that. So it's... Well, just be kind of interesting. Yeah. A road trip. Yes, exactly.
1: When we're, you're not we're teaching. Always, yeah, we're, we're always up for those. Yeah. It, yeah. It yeah. must be nice to have a character that somebody wrote about. <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs> Listen. Um, Betsy, but, but
2: your other character, uh, Jamama Boone, in fact we're discussing uh, there is a book coming out uh, written by uh, Matthew Pearl. Is that right, uh, Ed? I think so. Um, and, Betsy, um, uh, first book on Jemima Boone, the fourth daughter of uh, of Daniel and Rebecca Boone. Uh, Tell us a a little bit about her and I there's more than just the one major incident in her life, is there not?
1: There is. She's sort of like the poster child for (laughs) all of the women who lived on the frontier and got dragged around against their will. She was born in North Carolina in Rowan County in a fairly civilized settlement but when she was about 10 her father came back from visiting Kentucky and he would be gone for years not just a couple of months here and there he would disappear for a couple of years I don't know how that works but it did Um, people can't find themselves their partners across a Walmart these days without (laughs) texting but he could find his way home. And he was so excited about Kentucky, he came back home. He got about 40 people from the settlement to move or to try to move to Kentucky with him. And on that trip, they made it far enough for the Indians to be unhappy about their presence. And one of her brothers was murdered by Native Americans who attacked the little a little band of boys that was sort of herding cattle and bringing up some supplies from the rear and it was a blow and they sort of went back to their starting point at the edge of the wilderness and got it together and tried again in a couple of years but from that point when they left kentucky or when they left north carolina for kentucky in 1773 originally she was always on the edge of the frontier always sort of in danger either from privation or native american attacks they were the last attack in kentucky occurred in 1793 and then six years later they were on their way to another frontier in missouri and during that time their early settlement there the war of 1812 occurred so she in the process of all these moves and living on the frontier, she lost two brothers to Native American attacks. And she also lost a grown son who was leading some men in 1814 and was killed. So she she didn't ever really—and America had it going. By the time she died in 1734 or 1834, there were—great you know, great things were happening. There were cities, there were wonderful things, and she was still— smoking her corncob pipe, sitting in her doorway as a granddaughter remembered her, you know, sort of weeping because of her whole life spent in this struggle to just survive. But, of course, the story that if you know anything about Jemima Boone, the story you know is that she was kidnapped in 1776 as a 13-year-old girl and taken for about three days. And never knew whether she would see her family again. And she had confidence in her father, but as time passed and the first day passed and the second day passed, she began to lose hope, which of course was about the time that he came rushing in with his men behind him and rescued her. But it was, you know, what might sound like an adventure from our 21st century perspective was a living nightmare for 60 years for her.
2: So she was rescued by her
1: father. Baboon, mm-hmm.
2: and um, she wasn't harmed that we know of uh, by the Native Americans while she was in captivity.
1: She was not. And what I find wonderful about her and her father, even though he has come down to us as this, you know, fighter of the red savage and in, you know, going to kill the Indians and take the frontier boone himself had great respect he was actually at one point adopted into the family of a man named blackfoot he you know he spoke their language he was very respectful of them and it when he was asked toward the end of his life how many indians have you really killed he said three and that was in a situation where it was kill or be killed mm-hmm. and he passed that along to her i think and she said several times that they, they didn't harm her, and that the man that was leading the party of Native Americans that took her was named Hanging Ma, and he talked about, he liked her pretty long dark hair, and she would, he asked her to pick lice from his hair, so it was just, <laughs> it was, it was great. And she was perfectly happy to do it, because <laughs> anything she could do to slow them down mm-hmm. gave her father and the rescuers more chance to catch up mm-hmm. with them. but. She didn't she didn't badmouth them, she didn't malign them, she wasn't she didn't come back to Boonesboro and say you've gotta go back out and raise a party of people and massacre all the Indians around. She just sort of but I I think that kind of abduction took place more more times than people realized. And what I find interesting the Native Americans would respect and bring you know, whites into their families, if they captured some, they were perfectly willing to keep Daniel Boone forever as a son and it was, you know, assimilate him and it was fine. Mm -hmm. It did not work the other way. Mm -hmm. And it happened more often with women than men. Men were more likely to try to do anything they could to get away and come home.
2: And was she with um, Daniel Boone till his death in, and he died in Missouri, correct?
1: He died in Missouri. And her history is so spotty. There's so very little, even though that kidnapping is the most written about story that happened in Pioneer Kentucky times, there's so little, like any little Mm -hmm. sentence I would find about her during my research was just a a treasure, a jewel. Mm -hmm. But um, now I've forgotten the question. (laughs) Uh, She was with
2: uh, Daniel Boone when he died in Missouri.
1: Right. that, That was... That was the problem because she's so—it didn't matter where she was because nobody cared (laughs) enough to write down where she lived. There'd be Mm. little bits that would make me think that, yes, that's true, because they would talk about the daughters living by, or he would talk about when Boone lived in Limestone, or we call it Maysville now— but he mentioned Jemima's husband helping him survey. So they had to have been in that area then. But I can't say definitively that they were always in the neighborhood. But when they went to Missouri in 1795, most of the family was either with them or shortly joined them.
0: What, she said something after she was rescued. She said, I'll always stay by him. Didn't she? Or am Maybe. I making that You're up? You're making no,
1: that up. I, I think. No, I
0: read, no, you told me that. So, <laughs> we, I remember when you were doing your research they it was we. Many people have heard about that kidnapping, mm-hmm. but it was also actually one of the most, the most documented. Like mm-hmm. people, like it was very famous, but it was also incredibly well documented mm-hmm. by the people who were were there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that it more exists about that little moment in time than almost any you know almost anything else of, the, of that era of similar things mm-hmm.
2: well Ed and Betsy Smith it's been a, a pleasure and uh, a joy really it's been it's been fascinating these are uh, characters that you perform for Kentucky Humanities uh, Chautauqua presentations and and they're really interesting um, people you're interesting too <laughs> well, <thank> uh, you. <laughs> and uh, uh, so uh, besides your uh, being interesting on the podcast uh, uh, on our website or on iTunes. Um, I'm sure that you're, uh, you're waiting uh, and anxious to get out on the road and, and perform, and people uh, can find uh, your booking form on the website. It's really easy to do, and uh, maybe sometime latter part of the summer, before school starts, you're out and about and uh, can do this. Uh, we, we look forward to seeing you, so Uh, hopefully. Good luck with your characters. Thank you much. Thank you very much.
1: Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.